Section 9. God's Truth, Romance, and the Grand Style of On a Chinese Screen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Galen. On a Chinese Screen by W. Somerset Mom. Chapters 23 through 25. 23. God's Truth. Birch was the agent of the B.A.T., and he was stationed in a little town of the interior with streets which, after it had rained, were a foot deep in mud. Then you had to get right inside of your cart to prevent yourself from being splashed from head to foot. The roadway, worn to pieces but the ceaseless traffic, was so full of holes that the breath was jolted out of your body as you jogged along at a foot pace. There were two or three streets of shops, but he knew by heart everything that was in them, and there were interminable winding alleys which presented a monotonous expanse of wall broken only by solid closed doors. These were the Chinese houses, and they were as impenetrable to one of his color as the life which surrounded him. He was very homesick. He had not spoken to a white man for three months. His day's work was over. Since he had nothing else to do, he went for the only walk there was. He went out of the city gate and strolled along the ragged road with its deep ruts into the country. The valley was bounded by wild, barren mountains, and they seemed to shut him in. He felt immeasurably far from civilization. He knew he could not afford to surrender to that sense of utter loneliness which beset him, but it was more of an effort than usual to keep a stiff upper lip. He was very nearly at the end of his tether. Suddenly he saw a white man riding toward him on a pony. Behind came slowly a Chinese cart in which presumably were his belongings. Birch guessed at once that this was a missionary going down to one of the treaty ports from his station further up country, and his heart leaped with joy. At last he would have someone to talk to. He hurried his steps. His lassitude left him. He was all alert. He was almost running when he came up to the rider. Hello, he said. Where have you sprung from? The rider stopped and named a distant town. I am on my way down to take the train, he added. You'd better put up with me for the night. I haven't seen a white man for three months. There's lots of room at my place. B.A.T., you know. B.A.T., said the writer. His face changed and his eyes, before friendly and smiling, grew hard. I don't want to have anything to do with you. He gave his pony a kick and started on, but Birch seized the bridle. He could not believe his ears. What do you mean? I can't have anything to do with a man who trades in tobacco. Let go of that bridle. But I've not spoken to a white man for three months. That's no business of mine. Let go of that bridle. He gave his pony another kick. His lips were obstinately set, and he looked at Birch sternly. Then Birch lost his temper. He clung to the bridle as the pony moved on and began to curse the missionary. He hurled at him every term of abuse he could think of. He swore. He was horribly obscene. The missionary did not answer, but urged his pony on. Birch seized the missionary's leg and jerked it out of the stirrup. The missionary nearly fell off, and he clung in a somewhat undignified fashion to the pony's mane. 
Then he half slipped, half tumbled to the ground. The cart had come up to them by now and stopped. The two Chinese who were sitting in it looked at the white men with indolent curiosity. The missionary was livid with rage. You've assaulted me. I'll have you fired for that. You can go to hell, said Birch. I haven't seen a white man for three months, and you won't even speak to me. Do you call yourself a Christian? What is your name? Birch is my name, and be damned to you. I shall report you to your chief. Now stand back and let me get on my journey. Birch clenched his hands. Get a move on, or I'll break every bone in your body. The missionary mounted, gave his pony a sharp cut with the whip, and cantered away. The Chinese cart lumbered slowly after. But when Birch was left alone, his anger left him, and a sob broke unwillingly from his lips. The barren mountains were less hard than the heart of man. He turned and walked slowly back to the little walled city. Chapter 24 Romance All day I had been dropping down the river. This was the river up which Cheng Chen, seeking its source, had sailed for many days till he came to a city where he saw a girl spinning and a youth leading an ox to the water. He asked what place this was, and in reply the girl gave him her shuttle, telling him he was to show it on his return to the astrologer Yan Changping, who would thus know where he had been. He did so, and the astrologer at once recognized the shuttle as that of the spinning damsel, further declaring that on the day and at the hour when Chang Chien received the shuttle, he had noticed a wandering star intrude itself between the spinning damsel and the cowherd. So Chang Chien knew that he had sailed upon the bosom of the Milky Way. I, however, had not been so far. All day, as for seven days before, my five rowers, standing up, had rowed, and there rang still in my ears the monotonous sound of their oars against the wooden pan that served as rowlock. Now and again the water became very shallow, and there was a jar and a jolt as we scraped along the stones of the riverbed. Then two or three of the rowers turned up their blue trousers to the hip and let themselves over the side. Shouting, they dragged the flat-bottomed boat over the shoal. Now and again we came to a rapid, of no great consequence when compared with the turbulent rapids of the Yangtze, but sufficiently swift to call for trackers to pull the junks that were going upstream, and we, going down, passed through them with many shouts, shot the foaming breakers, and presently reached water as smooth as any lake. Now it was night, and my crew were asleep, forward, huddled together in such shelter as they had been able to rig when we moored at dusk. I sat on my bed. Bamboo matting spread over three wooden arches, made the sorry cabin which for a week had served me as parlor and bedroom. It was closed at one end by matchboarding, so roughly put together that there were large chinks between each board. The bitter wind blew through them. It was on the other side of this that the crew, fine, sturdy fellows, rode by day and slept by night, joined then by the steersman, who had stood from dawn to dusk in a tattered blue gown and a wadded coat of fitted gray, a black turban round his head, at the long oar which was his helm. 
There was no furniture but my bed, a shallow dish, like an enormous soup plate, in which burned charcoal, for it was cold, a basket containing my clothes, which I used as a table, and a hurricane lamp, which hung from one of the arches and swayed slightly with the motion of the water. The cabin was so low that I, a person of no great height, I comfort myself with Bacon's observation that with tall men it is, as with tall houses, the top story is commonly the least furnished, could only just stand upright. One of the sleepers began to snore more loudly, and perhaps he awoke two of the others, for I heard the sound of speaking, but presently this ceased, the snore was quiet, and all about me once more was silence. Then suddenly I had a feeling that here, facing me, touching me almost, was the romance I sought. It was a feeling like no other, just as specific as the thrill of art. But I could not, for the life of me, tell what it was that had given me just then that rare emotion. In the course of my life I have often been in situations which, had I read of them, would have seemed to me sufficiently romantic but it is only in retrospect, comparing them with my ideas of what was romantic, that I have seen them as at all out of the ordinary. It is only by an effort of the imagination, making myself, as it were, a spectator of myself acting a part, that I have caught anything of the precious quality and circumstances which in others would have seemed to me instinct with its fine flower. When I have danced with an actress whose fascination and whose genius made her the idol of my country, or wandered through the halls of some great house in which was gathered all that was distinguished by lineage or intellect that London could show, I have only recognized afterwards that here, perhaps, though in somewhat widesque a fashion, was romance. In battle, when, myself in no great danger, I was able to watch events with a thrill of interest. I had not the phlegm to assume the part of a spectator. I have sailed through the night, under the full moon, to a coral island in the Pacific, and then the beauty and the wonder of the scene gave me a conscious happiness, but only later the exhilarating sense that romance and I had touched fingers. I heard the flutter of its wings when once, in the bedroom of a hotel in New York, I sat around a table with half a dozen others and made plans to restore an ancient kingdom whose wrongs have for a century inspired the poet and the patriot. But my chief feeling was a surprised amusement that through the hazards of war I found myself engaged in business so foreign to my bent. The authentic thrill of romance has seized me under circumstances which one would have thought far less romantic and I remember that I knew it first one evening, when I was playing cards in a cottage on the coast of Brittany. In the next room an old fisherman lay dying, and the women of the house said that he would go out with the tide. Without a storm was raging, and it seemed fit for the last moments of that aged warrior of the seas that his going should be accompanied by the wild cries of the wind as it hurled itself against the shuttered windows. The waves thundered upon the tortured rocks. I felt a sudden exaltation, for I knew that here was romance. And now the same exaltation seized me, and once more romance, like a bodily presence, was before me. 
It had come so unexpectedly that I was intrigued. I could not tell whether it had crept in among the shadows that the lamp threw on the bamboo matting, or whether it was wafted down the river that I saw through the opening of my cabin. Curious to know what were the elements that made up the ineffable delight of the moment, I went out to the stern of the boat. Alongside were moored half a dozen junks, going up river, for the masts were erect, and everything was silent in them. Their crews were long since asleep. The night was not dark, for though it was cloudy the moon was full, but the river in that veiled light was ghostly. A vague mist blurred the trees on the further bank. It was an enchanting sight, but there was in it nothing unaccustomed, and what I sought was not there. I turned away. But when I returned to my bamboo shelter, the magic which had given it so extraordinary a character was gone. Alas, I was like a man who should tear a butterfly to pieces in order to discover in what its beauty lay. And yet, as Moses descending from Mount Sinai wore on his face a brightness from his converse with the God of Israel, my little cabin, my dish of charcoal, my lamp, even my camp bed, had still about them something of the thrill which for a moment was mine. I could not see them any more quite indifferently, because for a moment I had seen them magically. 25. The Grand Style He was a very old man. It was fifty-seven years since he came to China as a ship's doctor and took the place in one of the southern ports of a medical officer whose health had obliged him to go home. He could not then have been less than twenty-five, so that now he must have been well over eighty. He was a tall man, very thin, and his skin hung on his bones like a suit of clothes much too large for him. Under his chin was a great sack like the waddle of an old turkey cock. But his blue eyes, large and bright, had kept their color, and his voice was strong and deep. In these seven and fifty years he had bought and sold three or four practices along the coast, and now he was back once more within a few miles of the port in which he had first lived. It was an anchorage at the mouth of the river where the steamers, unable, owing to their draft, to reach the city, discharged and loaded their cargo. There were only seven white men's houses, a small hospital, and a handful of Chinese, so that it would not have been worth the doctor's while to settle there. But he was vice-consul as well, and that easy life at his great age just suited him. There was enough to do to prevent him from feeling idle, but not enough to tire him. His spirit was still hale. "'I'm thinking of retiring,' he said. "'It's about time I gave the youngsters a chance.' He amused himself with plans for the future. All his life he had wanted to visit the West Indies, and upon his soul he meant to now. By George, sir. He couldn't afford to leave it much longer. England. Well, from all he heard, England was no place for a gentleman nowadays. He was last there thirty years ago. Besides, he wasn't English. He was born in Ireland. Yes, sir, he took his degree at Trinity College, Dublin. But what with the priests on one side, and the sin-finers on the other, he could not believe there was much left of the Ireland he knew as a boy. A fine country to hunt in, he said, with a gleam in his open blue eyes. 
he had better manners than are usually found in the medical profession which though blessed with many virtues neglects somewhat the amenities of polite behaviour i do not know whether it is commerce with the sick which gives the doctor an unfortunate sense of superiority the example of his teachers some of whom have still had a bad tradition of rudeness which certain eminent practitioners of the past cultivated as a professional asset or his early training among the poor patients of a hospital whom he is apt to look upon as of a lower class than himself but it is certain that no body of men is on the whole so wanting in civility he was very different from the men of my generation but whether the difference lay in his voice and gesture in the ease of his manner or in the elaborateness of his antique courtesy it was not easy to discover I think he was more definitely a gentleman than people are nowadays when a man is a gentleman with deprecation. The word is in a bad odor and the qualities it denotes have come in for a deal of ridicule. Persons who by no stretch of the fancy could be so described have made a great stir in the world during the last thirty years, and they have used all the resources of their sarcasm to render odious a title which they are perhaps all too conscious of never deserving. Perhaps also the difference in him was due to a difference of education. In his youth he had been taught much useless learning, the classics of Greece and Rome, and they had given a foundation to his character, which in the present is somewhat rare. He was young in an age which did not know the weekly press, and when the monthly magazine was a staid affair. Reading was more solid. Perhaps men drank more than was good for them, but they read Horace with pleasure, and they knew by heart the novels of Sir Walter Scott. He remembered reading the Newcombs when it came out. I think the men of that time were, if not more adventurous than the men of ours, more adventurous in the grand manner. Now a man will risk his life with a joke from the comic cuts on his lips. Then it was with a Latin quotation. But how can I analyze the subtle quality which distinguished this old man? Read a page of Swift. The words are the same as those we use today, and there is hardly a sentence in which they are not placed in the simplest order. And yet there is a dignity, a spaciousness, an aroma, which all our modern efforts fails to attain. In short, there is style. And so with him, there was style. And there is no more to be said. End of section 9. Recording by Galen. March 23rd, 2010, Seattle.